Hello, and welcome to episode 151 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We are here today with Peter Franchot, the comptroller of the state of Maryland. Peter is also a member of the Board of Public Works. He's a former Democratic delegate representing District 20 in Montgomery County, Maryland, a former Capitol Hill staffer and attorney. Peter Franchot is also a veteran of the United States Army. He's a former delegate to the Democratic National Convention in 2008, 2012, and again in 2016. Peter is also a former Democratic candidate for the United States Congress. Peter, how are you doing today? Fabulous, Jordan, and thank you for this exercise in uh, civic responsibility and all the podcasts you do. I appreciate it, and uh, I know everybody who's already been interviewed by you uh, likes the process. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so the first question I'd like to ask you is, what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? Well, uh, I have been a warrior for public interest uh, issues all my life, and I'm not sure where that comes from, frankly. I think my mother uh, taught me always to stand up to bullies, and in school, I was always a gifted athlete, but not a particularly, uh, you know, social leader type, but I always felt much better when I was sticking up for some of the kids that were not good athletes and sometimes got picked on in the lunchroom and stuff, and so that is the genesis of my altruism which I've carried forward in my public career. And when I got out of college um, after the Army, I uh, worked for an environmental organization in Vermont that was supported by its members called Vermont Tomorrow. I then worked for the Vermont Public Interest Research Group, a Ralph Nader organization, once again up in Vermont. Then I went to law school at Northeastern, and I came down to Washington and worked for a public interest group, the Union of Concerned Scientists. Then I had the good fortune to be hired by a former congressman, now U.S. Senator Ed Markey from Massachusetts, and was his staff director for six years from 1980 to 1986. Mm -hmm. And that really I considered to be a public interest job because uh, Congressman, now Senator Markey, was an extraordinarily progressive uh, individual elected official. Then the time I spent in the legislature, 20 years representing the People's Republic of Tacoma Park, <laughs> you, can't be, you can't be too liberal for uh, District 20. And I was able to continue uh, my advocacy for uh, the public interest. And now that I'm comptroller and have been for the last 10 years, I actually have more opportunity, more flexibility because I have a much bigger staff bigger responsibilities, I'm elected statewide, and I find uh, that every day I am working in the public interest, uh, primarily by helping individuals uh, who are in financial situations that are difficult and complicated, uh, but also in uh, being available as a state elected official for anybody mm -hmm. to buttonhole me and ask me to help out with something uh, Maybe little or maybe a big issue, but so in an odd way, I don't mean to be uh, puffing my uh, ego up here or something, but in an odd way for, I'm 69 years old now, for my entire professional life, I have been either partially or 
fully engaged in working for the public interest. Interesting. And so the formation of your political identity uh, is also an interesting topic. Uh, obviously, going to the United States Army after college, one associates the Army with, Army with more conservative individuals. I wonder if we can start there and if you can tell our listening audience why during the Vietnam War you ended up joining the United States Army, if there's any correlation, um, and then how you ended up going to law school after that. Well, I actually uh, didn't finish college. I was at Amherst College, and halfway through my sophomore year in uh, January, I dropped out of Amherst College to go uh, to New Hampshire to work on behalf of Gene McCarthy, who was running in the 1968 Democratic primary up there and was running to stop the Vietnam War. And I thought that was just a great piece of uh, history that I could work in the clean with Gene uh, presidential campaign. And I uh, was entirely happy there. I was an organizer on campuses in a number of different states uh, uh, after uh, New Hampshire, where he had a very good showing. I was there and I was out in Indiana. I was in Pennsylvania. I was in Illinois. I was all over the place organizing uh, college campuses for Gene McCarthy. Then I got a draft notice saying, dear sir, you no longer are uh, protected by your college enrollment and uh, you are to report for the draft. Well, that was a shock to me, but. That was somewhat uh, ironic. Yeah, it was very ironic. You you left college. You left college to join political campaigns because of the the anti-Vietnam War platform of those campaigns. And by virtue of your civic activism, you actually ended up getting embroiled in the war. Exactly. And my parents actually said I was pretty dumb and clueless that I didn't (laughs) realize I was giving up my student deferment. But such as it is, it it actually, in retrospect, proved to be a tremendous experience. I was drafted for two years. I spent uh, 21 months, not 24 months, because I was allowed to get out early to return to college. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Army was a great experience for me, not in the sense that I enjoyed it, but I was put on a troop train in New York City and sent down to Fort Jackson, South Carolina with the other draftees. And, uh, you know, it was it was a different group of people than I'd associated with in my life. And uh, basic training was, once again, tough love. And uh, I didn't like it, but in retrospect, I think it made me serious, a more serious person. And then I got sent to Fort Hood for uh, advanced infantry training and to be a forward artillery observer. And uh, I never made it to Vietnam. I basically stayed at Fort Hood. I kid people and say, uh, you know, Texas was so bad, I actually volunteered to go to Vietnam. But that's a joke. That's a joke, Jordan. It was a pretty miserable existence, as I remember. But once again, the Army gave me some structure, uh, some motivation uh, to return and and get my act together, get through college, and become a productive citizen. And for that, I I always hold the Army in high esteem, even though I was, well, let's be uh, generous, I was a so-so soldier. Uh, But I did uh, did my duty and 
and uh, did my civic duty, I guess, of being in the Army. And uh, uh, I've always, uh, in retrospect, uh, seen it as a positive experience. So and, two things, uh, two things yeah. quickly, Peter, on the Army. Um, one is that I've never seen you to be one to use your experience and your status as a veteran to your advantage in a political campaign. Obviously, when uh, Anthony Brown, the lieutenant governor of Maryland, ran for governor, he uh, used his political his his military experience as a helicopter pilot in Iraq, Afghanistan, as a, as an as a, as a to his political advantage as part of his narrative. I've never seen you use that. Why? And also, you know, you were able to survive two years in the army, but you pride yourself as being a very independent-minded fiscal watchdog as comptroller. I'm wondering to what extent you were an independent-minded soldier and if that got you in trouble when you were in the Army. Well, it might have a little bit. I remember the drill sergeant called me uh, college boy because I had a year of college. Nobody else did in the group of draftees that I went down to Fort Jackson. And so he ridiculed that a little bit. But that was all good for me because I had a, a kind of inflated view of who I was at age 20 back then. Uh, uh, you know, I thought I was pretty uh, hot stuff, and it was good to get the rough edges knocked off in a way that, uh, frankly, proved to be a positive for me. And, uh, you know, I haven't used my veteran status. I, I, I'm not bashful about it, and I certainly don't hide it, but I, I didn't have the kind of career that Anthony Brown had, which is long-term and some of the other uh, veterans that are in elected office have had, uh, you know, careers that are perhaps worthy of comment more. My my experience in the army um, was, uh, well, I just it doesn't it didn't form the basis for me to mm -hmm. blow my own horn. I was just I was a very ordinary cog in a very very big machine. But I will say that the machine of the military uh, proved to be enormously beneficial to me as an individual and I actually recommend it to kids that I meet that are struggling to find some traction uh, I think it's a even given all of the uh, dangers of uh, world combat and stuff I think the military is a place that uh, can be a, a terrific stabilizing a couple of years for young people who are confused so running off that idea Peter I'd like to ask your opinion on a matter that you don't have jurisdiction over as a comptroller, but you might have theoretically had had jurisdiction over this as a state delegate for the 20 years you represented the People's Republic of Tacoma Park, Maryland. The topic is that many nations in Western Europe and perhaps in other parts of the world have service requirements for their youth. Um, and some of these nations, obviously, military conscription is something that's widespread around the world, and that's obviously what led to you being in the military and, and leading to the uh, beneficial experience that, that, that you had in the U.S. Army. My question is, do you think that there ought to be, or what are your thoughts about having uh, guaranteed, maybe not, or, well, one, mandatory requirements for all youth between certain ages to either join the military or perform public service uh, for civil society in some other way 
one would be that being mandatory, and second, that being guaranteed to everyone. Obviously, there are programs like Peace Corps, AmeriCorps, there are lots of volunteer programs, but there certainly are and Teach for America, but there certainly are not a sufficient number of slots to accommodate every Marylander youth who would like to do public service. No, I generally support that concept. Uh, uh, once again, the experience I had in the Army may not be some, the same experience other people would have, but I think it's very important for uh, kids uh, who are, you know, between 18 and 25 to uh, be required. I would consider it to be mandatory. Uh, I think it should be mandatory that every young person puts at least a year of their lives towards uh, some constructive uh, public purpose, either serving in the military, teaching in a school, uh, or, um, you know, involved in infrastructure. Uh, and uh, I am a big supporter of that. I would like to see uh, former veterans uh, included in some leadership capacity. Uh, I don't suggest that everybody has to go through boot camp, but I do think it's an opportunity to in install some structure and discipline and gives a sense of purpose to some young people's lives. And it's particularly important now, Jordan, because as you know, the economy is changing in front of our eyes. Uh, robots and machines are automating what were uh, tasks that generally humans were hired to do in manufacturing jobs. Well, now we've got this uh, globalization and modernization using technology, and a lot of jobs are being eliminated. It's causing a tremendous amount of dislocation in the country and around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that a mandatory uh, one- or two-year program uh, for young people where they are – uh, involved in some kind of public interest activity, mm -hmm. uh, but they're but they are be getting the chance to learn about the new economy rather than the old one. I mean, just think about this for a minute. Someday soon, we're not going to have any taxi cab drivers. There's a driverless have... car. But the, and the one thing that kids lack when they leave college or leave high school is professional experience. And the one thing that's stopping them from getting picked up by employers right away because they lack professional experience. So having a mandatory service project will give them the opportunity to duly give back to the state and the nation has given them so much in a free public education, but also an opportunity to gain real, real on-the-job on experience that will make them more marketable in the new economy. Yeah, so I'm not exactly sure of how you would finance this national uh, effort. Uh, it could be from a tax on robots. But if you don't like taxes, it could be on some kind of uh, Maryland or, or United States national or state uh, equivalent of war bonds where you ask people to participate. But the key is that every person between 18 and 25, let's pick that, uh, gets uh, two years of skill building. And uh, you're right, learning how to show up on time for a job and what it takes to hold a job in the private sector, but I'm uh, I'm more interested in the in the imperative about that. Not so much for my the reason I benefited, which was, you know, getting the rough edges knocked off me. It was it was more. I think it's more imperative now because this whole job situation is changing. I mentioned uh, 
uh, driverless cars, so how many mm-hmm. taxi cab drivers? What about robots delivering you food at a, at a restaurant mm-hmm. and, uh, or some equivalent of that? I know it's a little bit far-fetched, but we're in the process of machines replacing people in the workforce. So we have to come up with new jobs and new ways of employing uh, people, especially our young people. And uh, so I think you're onto something there with the mandatory service, how to pay for it and how it's structured and what, what exactly the jobs of the future are going to be is, uh, you know, still uh, out of the jury, still out. So um, on transitioning a little bit on the topic, back to the topic of you being comptroller, right? We're just talking about finding jobs, giving job experience and how to pay for it. Two things. One, um, I'd like to ask you to define what a comptroller is since uh, most of, some of our listeners may not know what that is. Um, and let's start with that, and then I have some follow-up questions. The Comptroller of the State of Maryland is a statewide elected position. It was established in 1851 to oversee the finances of the state. The state was in bankruptcy because the, back then the treasurer made all sorts of unwise investments. And so they created in the state constitution the position of comptroller, and I'm the chief fiscal officer of the state. According to the constitution, I'm the, I'm the fiscal steward of the, of the state. So I collect all the taxes, process 3.2 million tax returns a year. Uh, I'm heavily involved in issuing of tax refunds very speedily. We're fighting tax fraud, which is an emerging uh, problem. Uh, that's the core responsibility of the office. In addition, I'm on the uh, three-member Board of Public Works, which is a not a very well-known uh, panel, but it's extremely powerful in Maryland. It's unique in the country because I'm on it, the governor's on it, and the state treasurer. Uh, the governor and I are independently elected. Right now, we happen to come from different parties. He's a Republican. I'm a Democrat. The mm-hmm. treasurer is elected by the legislature. Well, this panel uh, approves nine to ten billion dollars in state contracts every year. We meet every two weeks, and it's a, it's an enormous uh, kind of clearinghouse of uh, taxpayer uh, funding for different contracts, et cetera. So, and then the job's got all sorts of other aspects to it. I'm on the board of trustees of the state pension system. I'm, uh, oh, and all sorts of various boards. So it's it, it's generally a fiscal position, but because it's elected mm-hmm. and because it's statewide, mm-hmm. it's somewhat unique. Other states do not have elected controllers. Some do, but most have uh, appointed uh, budget officers. So you allude, you mentioned the Board of Public Works, and you alluded to the fact that you sit on the Board of Public Works with the governor and the treasurer, the, tre- the treasurer, of course, being Nancy Kopp, a Democrat, and you being a Democrat, and then the governor being a Republican, Larry Hogan. Now, you also made a previous um, um, allusion to your representation of a very liberal, progressive, um, somewhat uh, socialist-leading uh, constituency in Tacoma Park, uh, Silver Spring area, Montgomery County, when you were a delegate. The reason I bring this up is that uh, you mentioned that when you were a delegate in, in the House of Delegates, you couldn't be too liberal. You were very far to the left. Of course, since uh, Larry Hogan was elected two years ago in 2014, 
he uh, and you have uh, come, at least in the public image, to have quite a personal friendship and have come to work together, it seems, quite well. Uh, and that's reflected uh, in what seems to some individuals in Maryland as you having uh, evolved to have a more moderate and less liberal stance than you previously had in your two decades in the House of Delegates. Could you elaborate for a moment on your, your gradual evolution, uh, the gradual evolution of your political identity uh, and how that, I guess, occurred within the confines of real politics needing to work on this board with uh, an executive of another party? Well, it actually started when I was first elected because the office, by definition, uh, because it has a fiscal focus, oversight uh, focus, uh, demands that you have some independence from whatever political machine you might ordinarily have allegiance to down in Annapolis. That people, when they vote for the state comptroller in Maryland, expect, uh, since it's a statewide office, they expect someone who is fiscally moderate, but most of all independent of the uh, normal political machinations. They, they expect that. Now, if you become someone who is uh, harmful and uh, opposed to your own party's values, I suppose you can be uh, subject to defeat in a primary uh, election. But I follow two truths. One truth that I hold very strongly is that uh, working in the public interest as an elected official is a noble profession. And the second truth I follow is that there's nothing wrong with bipartisanship. And so I have actively, during my 10 years as controller, tried to drop the partisanship, except when it gets around election time, and I've tried to uh, sincerely, not rhetorically or or in a fake way, pretend that I'm bipartisan. I have tried to be independent, I guess, is the word that I would use to describe myself. And since the election of Governor Hogan two years ago, uh, yes, I've uh, we've formed a friendship, but it's mostly around moderate fiscal policies where we have a strategic partnership on the Board of Public Works. I think it's single-handedly that relationship has resulted in the fiscal house of the state of Maryland being put in much better shape. I don't want to take too much uh, credit for doing things on the Board of Public Works, but on things such as procurement, state procurement, mm -hmm. uh, we have significantly reduced single big uh, procurement awards, which contract awards. Why is that important? Generally, if you don't have, if you only have a single bidder for a state contract, and it's generally the incumbent vendor who is the single bidder, how do how's the how do the taxpayers know that they're getting the good deal? Because there's no transparency, there's no competition, there's no accountability. So together, Governor Hogan and I have significantly cut down on the number of single bid contracts. That's good for the state of Maryland. Now, unfortunately, you, unfortunately, it gets characterized as being, uh, uh, you know, working uh, with, sleeping with the enemy or something like that is how it's described. Yeah. It's not that. It's just reaching out, getting results, uh, focusing on things other than party politics and who's going to be the next governor and and focusing on, on needs of the people. And I, I think it's well received by the public. 
But who knows? I'm, I've been elected three times. Each time I've gotten more votes than anyone else in that election. And uh, I'm now going to be on the ballot in 2018. So I'll test uh, my luck with the public again. So um, I guess uh, I'd like to ask, so you work right now as comptroller to, you know, try to identify tax cheats and bring them to task and reduce cigarette mm -hmm. smuggling and illegal alcohol and fuel sales. You'd like to you say that you're closing corporate tax loopholes and really arguing for fiscal responsibility as an independent fiscal watchdog. I'm not sure if would you describe that as being the primary platforms that you ran as delegate um, and the primary legislative achievements you had in the House of Delegates, and if not, you know, how does it how did it come to pass that you decided that running for comptroller against uh, incumbent, I think William Donald Schaefer, uh, was the right thing to do, especially since these issues aren't the sexiest, um, and and it may not have been those that were most near and dear to your heart in the beginning of your political career. Well, let me be brutally honest. William Donald Schaefer, the former mayor, uh, iconic uh, mayor of Baltimore, iconic. Uh, political figure, governor, and also uh, comptroller for two terms. He didn't like me very much for running against him. And ironically, I ran against him on the theme that I'm a real Democrat and that he wasn't and because he'd gotten so close to uh, George H.W. Bush and, and other national uh, Republicans. But given that, uh, the reason that I have moved to the center on fiscal issues is because of the nature of the job that I have. We have 1,100 people working for uh, the comptroller's office. I have expert uh, folks briefing me on economic issues, and that has caused me to come more in the center on fiscal issues. And that's uh, been very well received by the voters, uh, not just around the state, but frankly, also in District 20, my old liberal district. Because there's a myth out there that uh, liberal Democrats or progressive Democrats are somehow not concerned about uh, fiscal uh, matters. They are. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're, they're concerned about them in their own budgets. They're concerned about them in their own small businesses. They're concerned about them in the state uh, politics. But those are not often talked about by the state Democratic Party. They're, we're often just talking about, uh, you know, issues that are very important, like discrimination and gun control and uh, issues that I've worked on, but they're more cultural issues than they are economic issues. And so, so I, that's the reason I've moved to the center on fiscal issues, but I, I remain a uh, absolutely rock-solid uh, Democrat and uh, have been my entire life. I'd like to, uh, we are approaching the end of the podcast. I'd like to ask you a final question, um, Peter, which is to speak to the taxpayers of the state of Maryland. And I'd like you to take a moment and explain why being a politician is a noble profession, why being, a, why being independent is possible, that you actually can act in what you believe is the best interest of the public at large and take a moment and speak to the taxpayers of Maryland and say why it is that you've been motivated to serve the public interest. You spoke about it in the beginning, but why is it noble? Why have you been motivated? And at the end of the day, you're 69 years old. You spent uh, 30 closer, years. To, 
you've spent quite a deal of time making the world better for Americans. I'd like to ask you to share your why your thoughts on why really you have uh, what your legacy is of all those years of service. Well, I enjoy the opportunity to make a difference, and I'm very uh, honored and very privileged to be the comptroller for the last 10 years. It's a large statewide office. There are very few of them in Maryland, and it gives me an opportunity to uh, do the right thing for people, and I'm grateful to the voters for letting me do that. But recently, we helped an elderly woman in Western Maryland who we found it falling way behind on her taxes, and she owed quite a sum of money in back taxes. And I put her on a payment plan. Uh, I believe it was $5 every month. No, $5 every two weeks. And the staff came to me and said, uh, sir, uh, with all due respect, the woman is going to have to live to be 142 to pay the state back for the uh, back taxes. And I said, that's fine. I understand that. But we're not here to make her life miserable. She doesn't feel right about falling behind on her taxes, but we're not going to get a pound of flesh from her. We're going to simply, because uh, she didn't have very much money, we're simply going to put her on a on the payment plan that she can afford. It's that mm-hmm. ability to inject myself into uh, situations where the bureaucracy might be more harsh and where I can supply some empathy uh, that I value so highly. and. Uh, is politics a noble profession? Absolutely. And it's uh, it's harder than you think. But uh, here I've kind of broken through and I have this great position. Uh, now, what happened recently in politics is a little troubling to me because the hyper-partisans on either side have um, kind of assumed control of their individual parties. And I... Uh, look, nobody uh, believes as strongly as I do that Donald Trump should not be president of the United States. I think he's a reckless individual. I think he's a vulgar individual. Uh, I think he's an individual who's completely impulsive and volatile and, uh, frankly, a danger because of his personality. However, his followers should not be punished or confronted and shouted at by our side. We need to get his supporters and uh, the Clinton supporters together and have them talk more to each other so that they don't, uh, we don't end up um, neighbors hating neighbors because of who they support politically. And I think yeah. I'm uh, positive, I can play a positive force in, uh, and urging people, despite the emotions of the day, to uh, try try to be uh, rational and level-headed and uh, empathetic. Um, and don't, just because you don't like Donald Trump, and I've already indicated my opinion of him, don't say that everybody that, for example, has an R after their name for being Republican should therefore be uh, treated with disdain and hatred also. You don't need that. Um, You can oppose Donald Trump or support Donald Trump and still interact with your neighbors and friends and the uh, parents of the kids that your kids go to school with. And I hope we can avoid 
what we're seeing right now, which is a lot of very uh, unfortunate negative emotions being expressed by both sides. And uh, that's something that I hope to play a common role in as the uh, in the next um, you know five to seven years as we try to recover from uh, this uh, recent election. That has been Peter Francho, the Comptroller of the State of Maryland, a member of the Board of Public Works, former Democratic Delegate from District 20, a former Hill staffer, an attorney, a veteran of the United States Army, a fiscal watchdog, uh, self-described, a former delegate to the National Convention, and a former Democratic nominee for Congress, who speaks about the noble profession of public service through elected office or otherwise, who has been on the front lines as a campaigner, as an advocate for environmental issues alongside Ralph Nader, who speaks about the importance of having empathy for those with whom one differs. He calls for greater civility and respect in the national dialogue as we talk about the many challenges facing our great nation. Peter is a man who's willing to be pragmatic when it comes to advancing the public interest. And he's willing to put aside any sort of reservations he may have with another's uh, approach to the public interest uh, and find compromise. Because for Peter, uh, as we've heard before with other interviewees, a half loaf is better than no loaf at all. And making sure that uh, everyone gets a fair shake and that we humanize the political process, whether it be by enabling a, uh, a woman of limited means to feel like she is responsible and she's being fair and she's being treated fairly by the state, but she's also trying the best she can to pull her weight and or whether she's humanizing uh, followers of, of an individual with, for whom he does not have much respect. Peter is someone who seeks to raise uh, the, the path uh, of public service to something of a noble calling. And that is why he touts the benefits of bipartisanship uh, and essentially empathy in his lifelong path of public service. Peter, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you. And this has been episode 151 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe as 16,000 listeners have listened Listen to publicinterestpodcast.com. You can listen on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. And should you wish to communicate with Peter, you can call 240-630-0380 and leave a voicemail that will be emailed to him. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.